Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, what's next? Now that NATO has affirmed Ukraine as a partner and future member as Russian troops mass on Ukraine's border. But first, the chairman of France's defense staff, General Thierry Burkard, in October issued France's first new strategic vision in five years that has at its center the notion of winning the war before the war This, as the international order fractures, competition among major powers hardens, and nations large and small become increasingly uninhibited by international law, norms, and conventions. The focus of the strategy is more global engagement to shape events while driving internal culture change to encourage forces that are more intellectually agile, bolder, and less bureaucratic. Joining us to discuss the strategy and what it means is Emmanuel Mignot, General Burkhardt's diplomatic advisor. Emmanuel, bienvenue, and thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Very happy to be with you. Uh, it's, an, it's an honor and pleasure welcoming you on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Emmanuel, uh, one of the key elements of this strategy that the historic paradigm of peace, crisis, and war has changed, right? We live in a much more fluid continuum, which the uh, strategic vision lays out, characterized by powers that are actually no longer inhibited by convention laws or, or even norms. What are the threats that are shaping France's new strategy that even your allies and partners can learn and benefit from? Yes, well, first, the the world security has seriously deteriorated. If you think about the year 2000, you could go by car from Morocco to Thailand without any problem. Now it's not the case anymore. And we have to face this reality and, and the one of tomorrow, which might be worse. So... First, on the assessment, what do we see? We see a world which is, is tougher. We see a more aggressive, uh, r- more aggressive relation between nations. Our competitors are challenging us in a more aggressive way and are becoming uninhibited. And while old and classical threats are still there, you see terrorist groups in Africa are not declining. We see terrorist groups in uh, in the Middle East, in North Africa. So there's still this old and classical threats and we still see our classical competitors, they're still there, but conflictuality is now spreading over to new domains, space, cyber, information, and democracies seem to be rather slow in investing in these domains. So the, the new uh, strategic vision of, of uh, French Chad is is to try to address this new situation. And so we thought there is a new triptych. We are not anymore in a world where there is uh, peace, crisis and war, uh, very defined stages, regulated stages, where the international community, international institutions are regulating this. But we see a new triptych, which is um, competition, uh, dispute and confrontation. The document doesn't mention any particular power, but clearly China and Russia loom large uh, in the document if you if you read between the lines. And as you said, right, these are the great powers that are pushing the boundaries and are becoming increasingly uh, less inhibited, right? I mean, we're seeing a mass in uh, of Russian troops on the Ukraine border right now. 
France is a European power, but it's also a very important player in, in Asia, as we've discussed many times on this program. In, in both, uh, winning the war before the war is, is critical, critical, right, and is taking a page from their playbook, how to win uh, without fighting, uh, ultimately. What, what does this strategy of win before the war mean in these two contexts yes. of Russia and China? Yes. Well, on uh, on the, the the competitors, as you rightly say, we they are not mentioned in the text, but uh, of course people can understand. We see uh, competitors, more active competitors, Russia, China, but also s- smaller ones that are are quite active, Iran, which are, uh, an, an influence which is spreading over the Middle East, and 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 Turkey being more aggressive also in, in, uh, in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. So we have to address this, this situation and uh, we need to uh, show our uh, determination at an earlier stage. We need to be able to detect the, uh, the signals of uh, and, and, and understand the intentions of these, these competitors, these actors, the stakeholders we mentioned in the strategy uh, in order to be able to to react and to 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 detect, we need to be more strategic. In fact, we need to be able to see things on a more global way. Now, our competitors are using all the fields, all the domains. So we have to connect all this to to get uh, a large picture. But of course, at the same time, we also have some some rooms for cooperation with these. Uh, competitors, we cooperate with with Russia on Iran, for example. We we cooperate with China on on global change, on uh, climate change. So you have a, a more much more complex uh, situation where you have to play all this grammar grammar at the same time. Over. It, are our current organizations sufficient uh, orga- to organize? the way we need to, right? I mean, is, I, I know that France is um, obviously a very important NATO power. Uh, it's also a key uh, EU nation, uh, but it also has uh, global alliances and partnerships. Um, you know, are our alliance structures good enough in this complex world to bring everybody together and organize, especially as the administration is trying to do to organize democracies um, together in the face of authoritarianism, which is becoming a challenge even on continental Europe? Well, this is a very relevant point because we see our competitors, they are one country and they decide in a very quick way. While we, our strength is to be a, a large number of nations, uh, but it's more difficult to, to, to decide. But we don't have any choice. For France, we cannot act anymore only, uh, solely, we need to act with uh, partners. We ne- need to act in coalitions as a partner in a coalition or to be a coalition leader. So we need to adapt our armed forces to this reality. I mean, we have never needed any more, some less to be in a, in a large coalition in an interoperability mode. And that's why we have pushed with the US inside NATO the, the issue of reactivity. Reactivity is key to be able to address challenges as when they emerge. 
And uh, in NATO, we have worked on trying to bring the whole alliance and allies individually to a higher level of reactivity. And, and next year, we'll have a, a, an, an example with, with France uh, having the role of frame nation of the spearhead of the NATO response force. So it would be a, a good example where we want, we'll want to show how we can promote reactivity in a coordinated way in, inside NATO. One of the elements of the document I, I like is, is this notion of driving cultural change, but also crafting coherent strategy, right? So that, it, you know, the, the whole picture of it is a coherent strategy that then uh, connects to ideally a, a program law that helps deliver those uh, capabilities within the French construct. I would, I would say that at the time the United States is developing all of these strategies, the biggest criticism sometimes leveled at Washington is that its strategy is maybe not as coherent uh, as they need to be. What are the capabilities France needs to develop, uh, Emmanuel, to support this strategy? Well, in, in the last years, we have tried to adapt to new dimensions of, uh, of conflictuality. We have made a big effort on cyber. We are making a big effort on space, which is traditionally a, a, a dimension where France was active. But we, And these trends are going to be um, uh, really uh, drive us for the future also. There is a new dimension which is emerging, which is in information. We need to invest this field um, much more to be able to win the war before the war. Uh, winning the war before the war means that you are able to show your determination and prevent uh, competitors to create some fait accompli that they, they will impose on your, your will. So the idea is to be able to be deployable, to be ready, and to have the, the capacities in place where uh, you, you want to show your de determination. The United States and France are the closest of allies, despite uh, the, the recent um, uh, AUKUS uh, issue that unfortunately caused uh, discord. Um, what is the role of the United States in this strategy and what does the role of France need to be in our strategic planning? Yes, well, for us, uh, the U.S. is the first um, partner in, in the military field. Uh, uh, we cooperate very much on, on, on several, several areas and, and several issues. First, inside NATO, as I mentioned, we have uh, a very good cooperation. Second, in the SAIL, uh, it's a real success story where France has taken the lead of the fight against terrorist groups and where US is supporting France. And, and now other Europeans are coming. Uh, the Takuba Task Force, for example, is a, is a good example of uh, a success story of European investing a security issue, and it's completely new for, 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 for some Europeans. Imagine that we have some Estonians in, 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 in Mali now, and this is also thanks to the US support in terms of strategic transport and uh, ISR. Um, other examples are what we do in the Levant, uh, where we are, the, France is the second contributor to the Operation Inherent Resolve. We, we still have uh, combat aircraft there doing missions 
every week and, and, and special forces on the ground. And last but not least, in the, the Indo-Pacific region, as you rightly said, France is a, a Pacific country. We have almost 2 million inhabitants in, in this area, 7,000 troops and, and permanently based um, air and, and, and Navy assets in, in, in several bases in the Indo-Pacific region. In fact, we have three permanent bases in, on our territory, on French territory, and two other bases in, in, in foreign countries. So we, we very much want to, to be present in this region where we see our competitors very active. And we have a lot of operational deployments. Last year, for example, we had a nuclear submarine going into the uh, Pacific Ocean, uh, the South China Sea. And we have regularly some combat aircraft exercises uh, and, and Navy exercise. For example, we had a, a very interesting exercise with Japan and the US in, and at the end of May. And we also conduct from time to time some embargo control operations on, on uh, North Korea uh, that are intended to implement uh, UNSC resolution. Is there as much collaboration, Emmanuel, as we need to have between France, the United States, as well as its allies and partners? Because at a national level, we have a tendency of building strategies that are not as interconnected with our allies and partners as it should be, right? France developed its own strategic document. You guys issued it in October. The United States now is working on a vast array of strategies simultaneously. Is there the degree of coordination we need to have at senior levels between all of these documents? Well, I think we, we at a point, all need to have um, to define our national strategies. But I think while writing our national strategies, we need to listen to others. We need to listen to partners to be able to take into account their input, their interest, so that things uh, can, can be coherent, as you say. I think this is a, a very important issue. We need to be coherent on... Um, the strategy so that one strategy doesn't hurt the other's interests. I, I want to ask you one uh, last question, Emmanuel, before we go, yes. which is uh, the question of intellectual agility uh, and crafting forces that are more risk tolerant are bolder, right? Uh, the, one of the key elements of the strategy on the human capital development is to build forces that are able to be as agile and organizations internally that are as agile as, as, as the demand. What, what is uh, the chairman doing and what's the team going to be doing within the, uh, and Minister Parley, of course, uh, in the Ministry of Defense to make sure that the human capital is ready for the challenge? Yes, I think we are working on, on, on this um, sector. In, in fact, we are, compared to the US, a smaller army, small armed forces. So we need to, to be, I think, uh, more agile and to be able to uh, work on the, uh, on, on, on the chain of, of command on the, on the C2. We, we need to work on the, um, on the human resource so that they can be more adaptable, more flexible, more multitask and, and, and more agile, that they understand what they are, that at each level, they, they can 
also be the bearers of the messages we want them to carry in terms of uh, showing our determination. Emmanuel, thank you so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you and yours have a very good holiday and a very happy new year and look forward to having you on the program in 2022. Thanks again. With pleasure. Have a, a, a nice end of year. Bye-bye. Joining me now is Michael Kaufman, who heads the Russia Studies team at the Center for Naval Analysis. He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and he just got back from a trip to Russia as the world grapples with whether Vladimir Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back on uh, your program. Uh, absolutely an uh, honor and pleasure. Uh, so you were in Russia when uh, President Biden and Putin had their uh, conference call. Biden and many other world powers have warned Russia against uh, invading Ukraine. On the other hand, Putin has made a compelling case, or at least if, you know, from, from his standpoint, is trying to lay the intellectual groundwork that actually Ukraine is you know, an indivisible part of Russia, making the comparison just like Taiwan is an indivisible part of uh, China. Biden has offered a strategic dialogue um, to some that's kind of caving in and rewarding Putin for uh, this aggression, right? I mean, the Russians have a tendency of doing this in order to get something at the end of the day. Where, where do we stand now, uh, Michael, especially that NATO has reaffirmed this commitment to Ukraine to allow Ukraine to join the alliance, right? That's in defiance to Putin's statements. Um, and Moscow has a tendency of trying to demonstrate that the world's promises, you know, that the world's promises and especially NATO and Washington's promises uh, are, are just empty words. How does this play out from, from your perspective? So first, um, to be clear, the Strategic stability dialogue is a policy plan for the Biden administration. It's not something that Russia attained to anything it's done this year. It was actually an initial uh, strategy of the Biden administration that they came in with. And the point of that was to manage and stabilize the relationship. I think some people wanted to do it because they thought it was a good idea. And other people wanted to do it, let's be frank, because they wanted to focus on China and Russia was deeply annoying. And they didn't really want to do Russia all that much because they didn't see a, a there there in terms of progress they could make on anything with Moscow. And the administration formed the China team first, right? And right. so they came in kind of with the intent to stabilize Russia, reorganize strategy and focus particularly defense strategy and whatnot in China, this, this kind of approach. Um, so if we look at what's been taking place over the course of the year, we, we can see concretely that as always, the real world doesn't look that way. Um, Russia's not in some precipitous, tremendous decline. Uh, Moscow actually has a big vote as to where it's going to end up on the U.S. foreign policy agenda. You see how it went from kind of being much lower down on the list to being essentially first place now uh, this fall. In fact, I think Biden's administration is struggling to get uh, notice and traction for uh, its Asia strategy, given how much the news cycle is dominated by Russia and Ukraine. And... You know, some of the core issues that are unsettled are, you know, both the crisis in, in Belarus and the, the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, right? The fact that there is actually a, a, a strong possibility that there could be a major renewal of that war, but on a much larger scale. Right. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in recent months, you can definitely see that to some extent, course of diplomacy works if what you're looking to get is engagement i've not seen russia actually get that much substantively out of it and i'm not sure they will the the response from the united states and nato has been to to take russian demands and red lines seriously but to not accept them necessarily right and so at right. the end of the day russia gets a conversation but it doesn't necessarily get what it's really looking for in, in any of these cases 
So where are we heading, right? I mean, no, nobody knows what's in Vladimir Putin's head. You and I were just joking before we got started that uh, Putin doesn't consult <laughs> the rest of Moscow and Russia any more than really uh, the administration is consulting it. And you, you made an excellent uh, point, and I want to get to whether uh, the connectivity between Xi uh, and Putin uh, in, in terms of constantly being able to distract and gain bandwidth, right? I mean, at the same time, uh, this, it does take pressure off the Chinese, for, for example, um, how can Russia be deterred, Michael? And if not, how does it get punished, right? I mean, ultimately, it's either both of those polls because folks are suggesting there's a carrot, as the president did, and as other powers have. On the other hand, there's also been a, a lot of talk about the stick. Uh, but Russia has a very high pain tolerance, uh, just like it has a high risk tolerance. Yeah, well, I don't really see what the carrot is. I mean, my personal view in this particular standoff, the demands they've come in with are uh, things that the United States can't possibly give them and NATO can't possibly give them, which makes me really wonder because this is this doesn't even look like what the Russians called like basically an opening maximalist bid to get something much less than what you're asking for. To me, if anything, I've grown very pessimistic looking at their demands because they look like a smokescreen, right? They don't look like serious demands. And uh People in Moscow perfectly understand that, you know, they're not going to get legal judicial guarantees, the way Vladimir Putin put it, from NATO regarding uh, NATO enlargement, regarding uh, NATO presence or, or, you know, bilateral ties of NATO members with Ukraine and, and all these things. So I've, I've grown increasingly skeptical that this is actually a peaceful diplomatic resolution to this. Um, and in terms of, okay, deterrence and, and, all, and all that, uh, all right. Well, the U.S. and NATO have been clear they're not going to fight for Ukraine. So the only thing they have left is deterrence by punishment, right? And deterrence by punishment, what we do have left is really economic sanctions. Um, political isolation attempts of Russia haven't worked. They've failed spectacularly uh, in the last seven years. The Obama administration tried this. You just can't isolate powers like Russia diplomatically, politically. It's, we've tried. It doesn't work. Um, sorry, Russia's not North Korea. Um uh, second, there's lots of other powers other than us in international politics. A lot of people in the West don't know that. Um, so they're not aware that China and India are really a thing sometimes. And I say this sarcastically, of course, but whenever people try to do these sort of isolation efforts, they say, Russia really wants us meeting with us. They forget there's other people in international politics in 2021. That's not the 90s. Um, and that's why these efforts won't, won't succeed very well. But the economic sanction one is, is an interesting challenge. So, okay, we know it doesn't deter use of force, and we know it's not been successful in deterring military operations in Ukraine. We know because we tried that. We tried in 2014, didn't work, and 2015 too, didn't deter any of the Russian military operations, hasn't deterred Russian use of force against Ukraine since 2015, which isn't to say it's not useful, it's not to say it doesn't do things, but it's to say we know what the limits of that instrument are. The extent to which the course of threat is uh, to disconnect Russia from SWIFT of things like that, I don't know. You know, one of the problems is that actually the United States can't disconnect Russia from SWIFT, technically. That's not how it works. The only way that happens is if there is a, um, uh, a passage of uh, legislation from European Parliament and agreement of the Belgian government. The United States does not have the ability to boot people out of SWIFT whenever it likes. That's a consortium, and that consortium can actually say no. And the United States can try to sanction the SWIFT organization itself, but I don't think that's a very hot idea. Um, so 
point being is that some of the e instruments of economic coercion that we can we can actually do is like go after Russian sovereign debt. To some extent, they're prepared for it. Right? They've spent the last seven years really trying to build up resilience, restoring foreign exchange reserves, making sure that dollar denominated, making sure they have backup systems, and trying to prepare for the event they are disconnected from SWIFT. So I, I think it's it's all worth doing, but I'm not sure how well if it's going to deter them if they got their minds set on using force to achieve local aims. That's, we just have to be sober-minded about the limits of the of economic coercion as an instrument. And and do you think, uh, and if uh, that doesn't work as a deterrent, right? I mean, is there a way to, in short order, make Ukraine more porcupiney um, as, as a way of, right? I mean, we're talking about uh, javelins, uh, the president has taken troops off the table, even though there are a lot of American trainers and European and, and NATO uh, and other nations that are helping uh, Ukrainians trade, right, train. Um, is, there, is there a way to bulk up in short order Ukrainian military capabilities to the point that if Russia does do something, it ends up being far, far more painful? Or no, not really. does the amount of force that the Russians are considering using going to make this a route and how, right, what's what's the limit line of what they want to achieve? Okay, that, there's a lot in there, Vago. So first, it, in war, everything's contingent, yeah? And it's not like on paper where you can just kind of guesstimate what a fight looks like. It depends on what the Russian military's plan is. It depends on what their objective is. And it depends on what Ukrainians choose to do to respond to it. And I don't have any of that, you know, information on, on my table. So we can say a couple of general things. Russia's quantitative and qualitative superiority and uh, the correlation of forces is tremendously against Ukraine and Ukraine's military, one, no matter what the, the military interaction likely to be, is likely to be. Two, don't know what Ukrainian plan is, it's probably not going to be a route that's likely to fight an organized retreat because uh, standing and fighting against an adversary that has tremendous superiority across the board is a sure way to get killed in place or at the very least just attrition down. Uh, that's not a winning strategy. Um, small uh, tweaks to kind of tactical capability, which are things like javelin, missiles, and the like, uh, can increase the amount of, of costs the sort of military costs, casualties, and the like that the Ukrainian military can inflict, but it doesn't change the picture at the operational strategic level at all. And it's not politically significant. Those who say these things, you know, might deter Russian invasion just fundamentally don't understand causes of war and how political decision-making works, right? So it, 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 here's a simple truth. Political leaders don't know and don't care about tactical military capabilities. They don't know what the interaction of them is. They don't understand how all this stuff works. And it's not particularly impressive to them. And most of the things they know are usually wrong. And you can figure that very fast when you talk to them. So if you think that somebody in the Kremlin is going to say, oh, they got 50 Javelin CLUs. Oh, wow, what a tremendous right. difference that's going to make. We shouldn't do this. We've changed our minds. That is not how it's ever going to go. Right. Um, so you can, tweak, you can tweak tactical things on the margins, but it's not going to make a, a, a whole lot of difference. And a lot of the Ukrainian requests for kind of higher level equipment, all right, um, Brief comment on that. I've not seen a lot of learning on the Ukrainian side in terms of defense military article requests because they're basically asking for random things like Patriot batteries and everything under the sun short of B-2 bombers. And the, the truth is that, okay, high-end systems, one, take a very long time to train to use. 
If this crisis plays out in the next three, four months, which is very likely to do, it's completely meaningless for the contingency we're discussing, right? Right. Two, uh, they can't really be integrated well into the rest of the Ukrainian forces, right? Um, these systems. Uh, three, okay, they're expensive to maintain, right? Four, uh, probably the munitions for them are expensive too. Uh, five, you can't just randomly dump packages of high-end capability into a military that's probably organized, structured in a very different way. And most of the other systems they have are not interoperable with these systems. And I expect this to be an, an effective way to build it out, right? And especially you can't do this last minute, right? Um, that's the reality. So these, a lot of the high-end systems are bad ideas. And in fact, if anything, you're burdening that military. You're burdening that military with expensive right. capability that's not very useful, will be too expensive to maintain, is not going to do them a look of good in reality and practice, right? You're, well, you're better off. If you want to send man pads, go ahead. If you want to send guided anti-tank missiles, fine. Makes sense. But please, whenever I hear this conversation, Ukrainians asking for Patriot batteries or Iron Dome right. and things like that, uh, well, I mean, look, right, I mean, this is uh, part of the challenge where uh, allies and partners are trying to help friends, whether it's Taiwan or Ukraine, about things that will meaningfully help their defenses. And ultimately, there's a big debate about, you know, why is Taiwan buying submarines when it should actually be, you know, making the spines on its porcupine denser uh, and, and sharper uh, with mines and a whole bunch of other things that could be higher payoff. We've got about two minutes left, and I want to ask you this question about the interrelation between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Uh, the two are increasingly on the same page. They make the comparisons that, you know, again, Ukraine is to Russia what Taiwan is to China, and it doesn't matter whether Kiev or uh, Taipei think of themselves as sovereign nations. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of might makes right and it's ours, and here's our historical claim. Um, ultimately, what, what does it look like um, if Russia not only takes more of Ukraine, uh, right, which it's which it can do if it wants to, what what do these two cases have in common, and and how do we need to craft strategy for one and the other simultaneously and increasingly? Right, we have been arguing, and you know the late great Peter Rodman used to tell me the most important thing is to keep these two separated from one another. Right, they're they're no longer separated from one another. They may not trust each other but they're increasingly in cahoots in terms of sticking it to us. And that can be very problematic. So what does this look like? And what does a smart strategy going forward look like? Well, I sound like Bismarck, you know, the key goal of German foreign policy is to make sure this, there's not allies between Russia and France. <laughs> sort of the, well, the key goal. The I like to goal. pay attention to history, uh, Michael. This is why I love talking to you. Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, I'm just sort of, I just reflected, this sounds familiar. Um, all right, one, they are different cases, right? China genuinely claims Taiwan as part of its territory. It's politically very significant. And, um, and, and uh, it, you know, that's, that's a more classical case of irredentism. Russia very much wants to control Ukraine, Ukraine's strategic orientation. Uh, it has seized Crimea, but it's not clear that Russia actually wants to occupy or seize any further Ukrainian terrain. It wants to impose its will on Ukraine by using force, kind of the way it did likely in the Russian Georgia War in 08. But we don't know. It's a range of contingencies. And look, war is uncertain, right? It's Milton Freeman say there's Freeman used to say there's nothing more permanent than temporary government solutions, right? So very easily you can have military operation whose goal is not to seize terrain like 2014 and 2015 in, in uh in the Donbass. And then the political end of it doesn't work out, and you end up actually occupying a territory you didn't really want to occupy, right? So these things right. can 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 play out this way. Uh after the first move, 
everything's brilliant in planning for the first move. It's all the other moves that usually are, are improvisation and merging strategy. Um, big difference is US has no security commitment obligation to Ukraine. It does seem to have one into Taiwan that's ambiguous. It's being debated in policy establishment here. The thing they have in common is fundamentally in different ways, both are a test of US ability to determine security outcomes in their respective regions. Though both, although much more the Taiwan case, would be looked to by other U.S. allies, right, in terms of U.S. Right. resolve and how it relates to their interests, right, their future. And both will have tremendous consequences for, well, let's be frank, a lot of the U.S. establishment is interested in primacy, U.S. primacy, both in Europe and in Asia Pacific, and they both will have effects for that. Um, but other than that, we shouldn't generalize too much or assume interrelated sort of uh, a relationship between credibility. These are hotly debated issues and in, in how international relations work and we can't unpack them in you know, less than two minutes. Thanks very much. Hope you and yours have a great holiday and a very happy new year and can't wait to have you back on uh, in the new year to keep tracking this and, uh, and uh, other issues. Thanks so much again. Thanks, Vago. All the best to you too.